Awesome, thanks. All right, hey everybody, uh, listen, if you have your copy of the Word of God, please go to Luke chapter 6. We have a very significant passage to look at this morning, um, and we don't have the words on the screen this morning, so I would encourage you to, um, to get there um, in your Bibles or on your phones. And in context, you remember, if you were here, uh, last week we saw a couple of a couple of scenes in the life of Jesus um, whereby he um, was doing things on the Sabbath uh, with his disciples. The first one was um, he were, they were walking through a grain field, and, you know, they picked some grain and rubbed it between their hands and made some food and ate it. And uh, the Pharisees, the religious folk, they were like, hey, that's, that's against the law, right? Because they had all these laws around what you could and could not do on the Sabbath. And Jesus said, hey, look, here's the deal. You don't understand the bigger picture here, and I am Lord of the Sabbath. So it's kind of like, hey, you did time out. Um, I'm Lord of the Sabbath. Let me tell you how it works. Essentially, it's what he did. And then also, on another Sabbath, they had a guy with a, with a withered hand. And what did Jesus do? Well, he healed him. And then once again, the Pharisees, the religious folk, were like, hey, that's not right. And they were all upset about it. And they basically said, hey, um, they started thinking about what they're going to do to get him because this guy is uh, not doing good things. He's not doing the right things. And he is challenging all this external law stuff that we've got going on for us. So the point there, there's a lot of points there, but one thing is they were more concerned about what Jesus was doing or not doing as he was revealing himself, showing himself to be the Son of Man, to be the Lord of the Sabbath, to be the Son of God. He was showing up, revealing himself, but they really weren't all that concerned about it as much as they were concerned about, you know, the external actions. But Jesus was and is the Lord of the Sabbath, the Son of God, the Son of Man. And what he did in you know, healing the, the, the man's withered hand and all sorts of other things. And we'll say that he heals much more people in today's text. He's authenticating by his outward actions who he already is. And this morning, um, and he preaches um, a sermon, uh, and it's going to be somewhat um, not new to you, uh, to a lot of you. Um, but here's what I want to talk about just for a second, because we could go through this sermon, this passage that we're about to jump into in Luke chapter 6, and we could come away with, hey, we've got some things that we need to be about, and there's some, I need to be better morally, ethically, I need to treat people better, and doggone it, I'm going to get out there and I'm going to try harder this week to do it. And that is not the point. I don't want you to miss that, because if you gave extra effort of, you know, treating other people well, loving your enemies, as we will see, then yes, could you do it a little bit? Yeah, you can. I mean, everybody can do a little, you see. But ultimately, what we're looking for, for all of us, what Jesus is looking for, is he's looking for transformed hearts, you see. He's looking for us to be changed because of his work on the cross, because of the grace that he extends to us. And then out of that, we show it's almost like authenticating that we are already believers based on what we do. And Jesus gives us some, some difficult challenges, I think, for, at least for me, uh, probably for most of us this morning. Um, but an illustration of this is I had a conversation with a friend earlier this week, and she, um, she's been through some counseling over the past couple of years, and she's going, okay, so all this, she's plowing through it, working on her issues, Right? 
And then she ends up going to speak to a couple of women at her church who just really invest in her in the moment. They pray over her significantly. And the Lord really did a work right there in that moment, really through the faithfulness of those praying over her and through her own faithfulness. And right there, she was radically changed. So her phone call to me was saying, hey, Mike, there's, I'm just, I've been going to counseling, um, you know, for like over a year, doing an hour a week and doing all this. And hey, it wasn't nearly as helpful as that one hour prayer that I had with those women because God just did a work. And so that's another illustration whereby we can always get a little bit better and through just her own counseling, she got a little better doing a little bit of thing here, but it was that God just changing her again, transforming her, helping her. That's where, that's where it really all lies. And today we're going to hear some words from Jesus that talks about what a true follower of Christ, a transformed person, a Christian looks like. The words are challenging and they will... Um, cause us to evaluate, to examine whether or not we really are Christians. I think that's what the passage did for me anyway. And I do believe that's a healthy question to ask ourselves. You know, later on um, in Luke, we'll get the, you know, hey, why do you, why do you, why do you talk about me, Jesus, and you don't do what I say? You know, there's, there's a disconnect there. And so even just studying this passage over the past couple of weeks, um, thoroughly um, convicted by it. I had to go, you know, sometimes I'm reading these things. I go, man, am I even a believer? And the Lord reaffirms that in me. But there is like, you know, I just really want to be filled with the Spirit, want to be empowered by a Spirit. I want to be changed. One other illustration I'll, I'll give you from, this is from years ago, uh, a guy in Louisiana. He actually comes to meet with me for counseling, and um, he actually drives an hour from outside the city uh, to come see me because he was so ashamed of the stuff that he was wrestling with. And he, um, he was dealing with some sin issues, and those sin issues affected his marriage, and he was really, really struggling. And so we talked about some things, and, you know, he, it was amazing. He comes into the office, and he starts telling me what's going on with him. And, um, but he tells me this. He goes, I need to stop doing these things. But he goes, I, more than that, he goes, his words, I need to be transformed. And I was like, oh, okay, pay attention to that. I said, hey, what is your spiritual background? Which is typically a question that I ask when I meet people. Um, like, what is your spiritual background? I said, super general. And often, more times than not, people just start telling me about church attendance. <laughs> you know, I said, what is your spiritual background? Well, I went to church with my grandmother when I was young, and I go to this church now. And they, 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 they kind of they boil down to church attendance. And I'm like, oh, okay, that's something. And this guy goes, yeah, I just really never went to church anywhere. He goes, sometimes on a on a Sunday morning, I'll dial into some, um, to some TV uh, evangelist and whatnot. And I said, who are you dialing into? And he told me, and I was like, yeah, we got to talk about some things, <laughs> you know? I was like, and um, I said, here's what transformation looks like, as I understand it, as, as a Christian. And walked through the gospel with him, and he was like, oh, wow. He, you know, he was, um, you know, he was new to him. Uh, and then we talked a little bit more about why he came in um, for, you know, dealing with his own sin issues, and he left. And then he comes back, and so basically I said, hey, you need to stop doing these things and start doing these things, and it'll be helpful to you, right? And so he comes back the next week, and he says, uh, he says hey, I did all the things that you told me to do, and I stopped doing the things you told me not to do. Um, but he goes, again, 
He goes, I still think I need to be transformed, though. <laughs> he goes, I think all you did was give me higher hurdles to jump over, and I need more than that. And I said, okay, I gave you more than higher hurdles to jump over. I said, do you remember when we talked about what transformation looks like in Jesus Christ is working on the cross? And he goes, I do. And it was then, it was just, I just had the opportunities to be alongside this guy as he committed his life to Christ. Radically transformed. What an amazing, amazing thing. And then tracked with him, you know, again for a handful of months. And guess what? His life looked different because of who he was internally. Inside change resulted in outside action. And so when we look at some of these things this morning, I don't want us to be confused to think, hey, I got to do all of these things that Jesus is saying to do so that I can be a Christian. You know, it is only through the power of God that we have the ability to do some of these things. So, again, we'll look in. We'll start with verse 17. Um, but, wow, I want to stop, and I want us to pray together. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, if we're about to look at these words that you speak to us this morning, my hope, my prayers that you would allow us to see what you want us to see and that you would convict us in the areas that we need to be convicted in, that you would cause us to examine our relationship with you and our relationship with others, and that you would affirm in us, Lord, who we are in you. Or you would confirm in us that we we're not really sure. Either way, Lord, we look for you to speak to us through your word today. Pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Verse 17, uh, Luke chapter 6 starts like this, and it says, And he came down with them and stood on a level place. And I'm just going to stop right there, because as the slide says, we're going to look at place, people, power real quick. Um, we're going to get into some words here, blessed are those, blessed are those. And you go back to many of you, if not all of you go back to, yeah, that sounds like the Sermon on the Mount that we find in Matthew chapter 5. And Matthew chapter 5 gives us a whole lot more words to the Sermon on the Mount than we get here in Luke chapter 6. And so then you have to ask yourself, what's the deal? Uh, because the wording here is a little bit different than what we see in Matthew. And people that would want to oppose Scripture and come up with their own crazy ideas about, I'm going to try to disprove that the Bible's real. They'll go, Bible's full of contradictions, Right? full of contradictions, like what's going on here in Luke is not the exact same wording that we find in Matthew and blah, 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 blah. And what you need to know when somebody presents that kind of untruth to you is you have to look at the message itself and go, is something counter to the other message? And the, the, the answer is absolutely not, absolutely not. Um, you can find inconsistencies, if you will, with times and places and little things in Scripture, because we have different writers writing different accounts. But man, is the message of the Word of God ever changed? And the answer is absolutely not. And so one way of thinking about this is going, okay, so how do we have this different, more abridged and some different wording um, sermon, if you will, from Luke than we do from Matthew? And it's, it's really, it comes down, look at it, reading and all the commentaries and Listen to all the super smart people. It really comes down to one of two things. And, and one is, you know, this is, you know, an account of the same sermon, Sermon on the Mount. But then we go, but this is a sermon on the level place. Came down and stood on a level place. So how can you build a mountain a level place? And there is a great possibility that when Jesus was up on the mount, that the mount is really more like a, like kind of like a rolling, cascading hill. So he could have been up 
and then came down and was on a level place, but he was still up on a mount, right? Uh, and so therefore, Luke just chooses to highlight some things in his account of this versus Matthew's. Um, the other way of thinking about it is Jesus, right? We don't, he was probably, we know, we actually we know for a fact, not probably, uh, he preached in multiple places at multiple times. And, you know, sometimes, uh, even me, I've had the opportunity to speak in one place and then go speak in another place, and it just so happens that the topic or the, the passage of Scripture um, was the same. So guess what I didn't do? I didn't recreate a whole new thing. Um, I just preached, you know, the, that essential message again, but based on the audience, it might have been a little bit different, you see? But the essential truth, absolutely the same. So I don't know. I, you, you may not care about anything about all that, but that's it. And so that's what we have here. Um, so he came down with them, and he stood on a level place. And who's with them? We just know that he's, he's chosen the apostles. He's got a lot of people with him. Here are the people. Uh, continuing in verse 17, with a great crowd of his disciples and a great multitude of people from all Judea and Jerusalem and the seacoast of Tyre and Sidon who came to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. That's who he's with, with a bunch of people. He's with his apostles. He's with other disciples. He's with a lot of people. And they came because he, what? He was right there. And to be healed of their diseases. And what does Jesus do? Verse, you know, continuing in verse 18. And those who were troubled with unclean spirits, what were they? They were cured. And all the crowd sought to touch him. For power came out of him, and he healed them all. Isn't that amazing? And so I don't want you just to, yeah, just to read over that too quickly. I want you just to picture yourself in the scene, and you're there, and you come up because you've got some infirmity, you've got some issue, and, you, and Jesus is preaching on a level place, whether it's up high or down low. He's preaching, and people are there, and he's, 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 telling some, he's telling some good words, but he's also healing. The empower went out from him, and he healed them all. And they, what, is it, what, is it, what does the Bible say? He says, and they, were, they sought to touch him. He was very magnetic. I mean, he, golly, if you just think about that, he showed up, right, as who he said he was. And he said, to those who might not believe in my words, let me, let me show you some action. Similarly to the situation that we read and talked through weeks ago, uh, you, where you had the four guys bringing in the crippled guy, and they couldn't even get to Jesus. Jesus was in this house, and they dig that hole through the roof. And, you know, Jesus says, hey, your sins are forgiven. Okay, well, who, okay, all right. Just to show you that that's, that's a real deal, let me go ahead and heal you too, right, physically. He shows up with outward action proving who he is internally. And now we get to uh, verses 20 through 26, which I just, you know, I titled it Blessings and Woes. <laughs> okay, so Blessings and Woes. Um, you know, blessing is this. Blessing is extreme joy. That's a good way of putting it. Super happy. And if you need a visual for it, the visual that I have of super happy people um, or the fans of the Tennessee Volunteers, all right? Anybody watch the game? That was awesome. Um, I'm blessed because my wife loves college football more than I do. Um, she's more emotionally invested in it than I am. Uh, she even gets weepy when the kickers miss the game-winning kick at the end. She feels for them. I'm like, it's a game. And anyway, but it's fun. Um, I'm more into it when my own team's winning, but man... Tennessee Volunteers, if you didn't see it, you should just Google it today. Google the pictures of the videos. They beat Alabama, which is awesome, and uh, at least in my book. 
and they storm the field. They take down the goalpost, and haven't seen that in a long time. I love taking down the goalpost. They actually got the goalpost out of the stadium and threw it in the Tennessee River. That's how much fun they were having. That's the truth. I, I didn't make that up. You go look it up. I mean, it was just, people were on each other's shoulder. It was exuberance. I mean, it was joy. And so I want you to think about that level of joy when we talk about the word blessed. Um, but, of course, that joy, um, it's, it's, it, it's short-lived, right? They could lose next week, and it's all over. Uh, but Jesus, when he's talking about blessed, he's talking about extreme joy because of, once again, the internal change that shows up in the actions that really point to the change that we already have. And when we say woe, because he's going to give us some woes here in a minute, too. Uh, woes are just like, ooh, that's just extremely bad. <laughs> just leave it at that, you know. That's a big misfortune for you. Sorry about that, you know. And so we get to these blessings and woes. But first, um, I just want to ask a real question. You've got to be real honest here. Um, I want to do a little survey. You have one of two options. You can pick option one, where you are poor, hungry, sad, and hated. That's option one. Poor, hungry, sad, and, not, and hated. Or option two, rich, well-fed, happy, and popular, right? Option one, poor, hungry, hat, sad, hated. Option two, rich, well-fed, happy, and popular. Raise your hand if you choose option one. <laughs> For real? Woo, <laughs> the scripture's going to speak something to y'all today. <laughs> I was like, yeah, if you, and if you raise your hand, I would have called you a liar because that's not really how we operate in life, right? We don't think about it in those terms, but it's really an unfair question. Um, because really what we need to look at is how Jesus actually draws out uh, these things uh, of blessings and um, woes, you know, extreme fortune or extreme misfortune. Um, I'm reminded of the passage in John chapter 3 where Nicodemus shows up to Jesus and says, you know, good master, we know you are a prophet sent from God. Uh, you're a teacher sent from God, because nobody could possibly do the kind of things you're doing um, unless, you know, God was with him. And, you know, Nicodemus is, you know, asking about, hey, you know, how do I get on board with that? Because I'm a pretty religious dude. And uh, Jesus says, hey, you have to be born again, which essentially he's saying, he goes, I know you're a religious man and you're well-meaning. Um, you're fairly committed when it comes to the Ten Commandments, but you need a new birth. You need that transformation from the inside out. And then he goes on here saying, and really what we find here, begin, you know, getting into verse 20 and following, what do Christians really look like? If you've been born again, to use that language, if you've been transformed, to use that language, if you've given your life to Christ, if you are one of those people that, like folks here in two Sundays that are going to be baptized, who say, you know, dead to the old self, walking in, in new life, I mean, what does it really look like in real time? It looks like this. It looks different. You are different from the culture. We are different from the way that the world is operating. And so let's get into it. Verse 20. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Now, on these blessings and woes, we really just have, um, we really just have, uh, we have a set of four with, you know, a positive and a negative. We've got a blessing and a woe that correlate together. So, blessed are you who are poor, for yours are the kingdom of God. Now just kind of skip to 24 to see the antithesis of it. But woe to you who are rich, for you have received your consolation. Now we got to go, okay, so does that mean that if I have too much money in the checking account, 
I'm excluded from the kingdom of God, and so I got to figure out a way to get rid of a bunch of money because that's what it takes? And the answer is absolutely not. Once again, we've got to look at Scripture to see how Scripture informs itself. You can think of countless people, countless people um, in Scripture and in your own present life probably that really, man, they've got, they've got bucks in the bank. You know, They've got wealth, but they are rich toward God. They're thankful for what God has given them. You see, you go Old Testament, you think about Solomon. You go New Testament, think about Lydia. And again, countless people in current life. And so then you know, what, do you, what do you really make of that? Well, I would say two things, um, and one is that we just stay with outward poverty. I don't have a lot of stuff. I don't have a lot of money. That can actually be a spiritual blessing of sorts, right? Because that could cause us to discover our utter dependence on God. And you go, where do, you know, where do you get that? Um, you can go back and look at the story in Luke chapter 18, which we often call the rich young ruler. Uh, this rich guy comes to Jesus and says, hey, what, what must I do to be saved? And he goes, hey, do all these things. Um, and, all right, yep, cool, 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 cool. And then, um, and then go sell everything you have and give it to the poor. And that guy went, I'm good, <laughs> essentially, you know, I'm good. He walked away in woe, if you will. And so, there's, so, so there is that. Um, but the other thing, too, is, again, going back to the similar sermon out of Matthew chapter 5, we get more words there. Matthew 5, verse 3 says, blessed are the poor in spirit, poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. And I'm not saying that this is, the verse in Luke here is completely divorced of material wealth, because it really comes back to, as I said already multiple times, and I'll keep saying it, it comes down to your heart stance toward that. You know, do you still see yourself as utterly dependent on God? Or are you the person that goes, you know what, I got enough, and so I don't really need God. I just come, I come to church every now and then. I do some Christian-looking things, but if you're really honest with yourself, you don't need God because you got a lot of stuff. Woe to those people. Verse 21. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Woe to you, verse 25, verse 21, blessed are you who are hungry, you'll be satisfied. Verse 25, woe to you who are full now, for you will be hungry. Once again, same thing, what, what should I do? Should I go empty out the pantry and not have food in my house? Well, the answer is, is no. But it still comes back to what our, I think what we need to search for this morning in our own souls is do we feel like we have this level of self-contentment within ourselves with what we have? Do we feel this level of self-dependence? And we, and we really, that causes us to not bow our knee before God himself. That's the real question to ask ourselves. And again, the correlating verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 6, says, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. So you get a little bit more words and think that's helpful. So it's like, it's not just we have enough money, we have enough food, but do you hunger and thirst for God? Do you hunger and thirst for his righteousness? Is that in you? Because people that are the Lord's who are transformed, that is a marker of them. 
We want the Lord. We want righteousness. We hunger and thirst for it, which is different from, yeah, I just want a little afternoon snack. You know, I want to go get, want to get me some bag, a little bag of the fiery hot Cheetos, and yeah, I'm good, right? That little snack. No, it's that hunger, that thirst. You need it. You want it because you recognize that all the other stuff that we have here in life, whether your pantry is just overflowing with all kind of stuff and your freezer is, is full of, you know, frozen shrimp. That's what I like. Yeah, you know, I feel like I was blessed if I had a freezer full of frozen shrimp, and, uh, you know, that's what I'd do. Uh, hey, check it out, man. Um, you know, there's a thing where you have to ask yourself, are you so contented that you really don't even bow before the Lord? Um, it's a good question for us to ask ourselves. Verse 21, more blessings and woes. Verse 21 and 25, finishing those verses up. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Again, it's countercultural. We don't think about it like that. And what's the problem with laughing? I mean, seriously, is there something wrong with laughing? The answer is absolutely not. Okay, we see where Proverbs 17, we see a cheerful heart is good medicine. It's good to laugh, right? We also see in the book of Psalms that God himself laughs. And so laughter in and of itself can't be a bad thing. Otherwise, we, we, we have an issue. But the, the, the issue here, though, and it also it makes me go back to Ecclesiastes. Um, I forget the chapter where it says it's better to go into a house of mourning than a house of feasting. And ultimately, the paraphrase right there is because it makes us really consider our lives. It helps us to think soberly about who we are, who the world is around us, the fact that death becomes all of us one day, which causes us to then think about, you know, are we in the kingdom of God based on what God has already done in our lives? Is that us? Well, the house of mourning can get you there. The house of laughing, feasting, oftentimes does not, less regularly at least. And so I think the laughing that we're talking about here is just that, it's just that silliness. It's that clowning, like everything's funny and life's just not serious and who cares about anything, right? If that is your heart stance, then guess what you don't think seriously about? The Lord, his righteousness, what he's done for you, that sort of thing. So there is that, so we keep, they keep, you know, Jesus keeps painting the picture of, you know, we need to recognize that we cannot do it on our own. We are not self-sufficient. We have to bow the knee before God himself. We have to trust in him and his work. And you know what keeps you from it? Man, having a lot of stuff, having a lot of food, having a lot of money, and just thinking like, whatever, it's just a big joke anyway. That's what we're warned against here. It's just that senseless laughter. And finishing up in this section on blessings and woes, verse 22 and following, it says this, Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil. <laughs> Remember, extremely happy when people do that to you. Anybody like, yeah, I love it. That's fun, right? No, but here's what he says. And the, next, the next phrase is super important. On account of the Son of Man, on the account of Jesus. And so it's no fun. I don't think it's ever fun for any of us to be reviled, to be spurned, for people just to look down on us and hate us and all that stuff. I don't think that's ever fun. But if you show up on account of Jesus to a conversation, to a relationship, and you get rejection as a result of that, if you don't get to close a business deal because you talked about Jesus um, or somebody leaves you out of the, uh, the golf foursome because last time we were together, you talked about Jesus, all, you know, whatever, then you know what? rejoice. You are blessed. You should be extremely happy because you know that is another 
just indication of the heart change that's already there. Blessed when people hate you on the account of Son of Man. And you also have to differentiate between, um, you know, I don't think you're blessed. I don't think you can have extreme joy when people hate you because you're just really obnoxious. <laughs> Even about your faith, uh, you know, it's like, oh, you're just, that person's really obnoxious. I'm not against Jesus, but I'm just against, you know, how they operate here. Uh, that's a whole different thing. <laughs> so, um, but what else are we supposed to do with that? Rejo- verse 23, rejoice in that day and leap for joy. For behold, your reward is great in heaven. For so their fathers did to the prophets. And then verse 26. Woe to you when all people speak well of you, for their fathers did to the false prophets. You see that again, there's the anti-verse, if you will. If everybody speaks well of you, that should tell you that you're probably speaking outside of you know, both sides of your mouth, if you will. That you show up like this one day and you can be in church and worship Jesus and all the stuff, and then you go to work on Monday, and it never crosses your mind, never comes out your mouth, you know, and so, and what happens is, so, you know, it's like, hey, when everybody speaks well of you, it's the same thing as, you know, how people spoke of, and currently today, speak of false prophets, because false prophets do what? Oh, they just tell you what you want to hear, and so if you're that person, let this, you know, be be a strong word from Jesus himself to us. And then, next section, love your enemies, verses 27 through 36, beginning of verse 27, it says, But I say to you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who abuse you, to the one who strikes you on the cheek, offer the other also, and also from the one who takes away your cloak, Do not withhold your tunic either. Give to everyone who begs from you, and and from one who takes away your goods, do not demand them back. Those verses are pretty straightforward, but man, hard to apply, hard to do, you see? And because this is, you read verses strong like this, I think you got to go, okay, so when do do I do this? You know, and really we're talking more, again, we're going more about the, the heart stance that shows up in action. Um, too much for today. But verse 29 does not mean, yeah, just continue to get beat up. Yeah, okay, this guy hit me, say, hit me again, hit me again, hit me again, hit me again, hit me again. It, it does not mean that, right? But it is definitely a heart stance for sure. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, before we com- conclude here today. And it's not like somebody that, you know, we're here, we got the illustration of the, uh, uh, of the cloak and the tunic. Um, you know, modern day, somebody steals your wife's car and you see him running off and, hey, hey, here's the keys to my car. Come back and get mine too if you want, you know. It's not, it's not really it. But it is, you go, how do you feel about those people? How do you operate toward those people? Um, you're supposed to, what are supposed to, we're supposed to love them. Love your enemies. And we'll talk about that. But let's talk about love. Uh, many of you know, but, you know, there's in Scripture... There's these four different definitions um, that we get of love. The first one comes from, from the word what, storge, and that is familial love. That's your family. Um, I love my brother because he's my brother, uh, or my sister because she's my sister. There's that aspect of love. And then you've got eros, right? And that is romantic, sensual love. And then you've got phileo, 
which is also, it's brotherly love, but it's not like, hey, this is my blood brother or sister. It has more of the thing of, hey, you know, I, you know, I, I play poker every night with, uh, or every week with this group of guys, and I love them, or we're on the same fantasy football league, or, or whatever we play, we fish together. I just love that guy. I love hanging out with that guy. That's that phileo. It's kind of that brotherly kind of a love. And then none of those words here in this passage have anything to do with those three words. Again, love your, your enemy, as it says, it is out of um, the word agape. And that is the unconditional love that God shows us regardless of our own merit, our own attractiveness to the Lord himself, whatever. It, says it's, it's not, it has nothing to do with that. Love your enemies has nothing to do with the fact that you just really like them. You know, you really love them, my enemies. You know, I feel a strong affection toward them. It's love hanging out with them. It's not that. It's a love that you choose unconditionally, and it has nothing to do with you really feeling pretty affectionate about them. Because honestly, I don't know that many of us, if any of us, feel really affectionate toward our enemies. You know, and, and who are your enemies? Wow, you know, we can go on for days on that, but I just think things that we need to pay attention to these days especially as, um, you know, these, what I would just call culture wars are just really ramping up. They're not new, but they are, seems like they're ramping up. You know, you've got all those issues. You may be in here as a believer in Jesus Christ, and you absolutely 100% believe in pro-life. Because why? Because God has set it out in his scripture that he creates us forms us in the womb, and yet, you know, you have somebody in your life who is just strong pro-choice or even pro-abortion. And is that person's viewpoint an enemy to the truth of God? Absolutely it is. And that person might actually, you might consider them to be an enemy of yours as a result of standing for Scripture. Same thing true with all the stuff that we wrestle with these days and have for a long time. But again, it's ramping up. All the stuff, you know, gender identity issues. Uh, sexuality issues, people that hold a, a different view from what God's word holds and that you hold. Yeah, are, they, are, are their thoughts and beliefs an enemy of the truth of God and the way that he has designed man and woman? Yes. And you may consider those people to be enemies of you as well. What do you do with that? Do you love them? Because what I don't like to see is I don't like to see, you know, all the bullets, metaphorical, and sometimes physical, but metaphor, we're just, you know, we're just shooting at each other, you know? Christians, I love God, but I hate you because of what you believe, you know? Different political parties, golly, political adversaries, you can go, yeah, I'm way behind this political candidate uh, based on these things. Oh, yeah, I know that, yeah, he or she has done all these horrible things. I'm just going to overlook that because we just really need to get him into office, and I'm cool with that, right? Or do you stand up? you know, for what you believe in and, and deal with that. But political conversations in our culture, you know, they're, they're hot topics. You know, I don't even watch the news anymore as a result of them. Do you love them? And now I want you to think about this as we talked about from the jump. All of these things, super hard to do, super hard to apply, it's super good as it really puts a spotlight on our own souls. But can you imagine for everybody in this world, that are true followers of Christ to actually start living like this, to love our enemies? Can you imagine how the world would be different? Ah, it's, a, it's, a, it's an amazing thing. And even that whole, yeah, you took something from me, you don't even demand it back, and yeah, you know, 
Can you imagine how many frivolous lawsuits would just go away? You know, we start thinking about changing the world, and I know that we get caught up on, um, we get caught up on litigation, and we get caught up on um, politics, and if we can just get this person in office, and we can do this or get that bill passed or whatever. Man, I just don't really see it going down like that, and I don't really see Jesus operating like that either. I see him operating as, hey, you know, follow me, and I will make you what? We talked about what? fishers of men, and how do you become fishers of men? Well, you look different from the world, and there's something super attractive about you because of how you are different, and it shows up in the fact that you would actually really love your enemies, not give that a good nod on a church on a Sunday morning on October, what are we, 16, you know, not give it a good nod and then forget about it, but think about who in your life are your enemies, and then you seek to love them. Who is the person that really just, um, they owe you something, can you just let them off the hook on that? It's just stuff anyway, could you? Out of result, out of a, out of a good heart, not, and again, not because you want to earn God's favor, but because you already have it and his power works through you. Remember the power we talked about earlier when, you know, everybody comes up to Jesus and he's just healing them all and everybody wants to touch him because the power is going out from him. Well, guess what? That power is within us, you see? And so we have that power as followers of Christ, and that's the only way that we even have the possibility of living these things out. You can't do it in your own strength. As a matter of fact, it was case in point. Nobody here chose, yeah, I'd rather be poor and sad and, and you know, hungry. Nobody wanted that, right? But here's the thing. Is it okay? Is it even divine? For sometimes, you know, we take the sacrifice. We take the hit for the sake of somebody else, which is ultimately for the sake of Christ himself. Other thing, too, I want to point out about all this is sometimes in the Christian world, we will get to a place where we can say, you know what, I don't really hurt anybody. I'm not, um, I don't seek revenge. I, you know, somebody harmed me. Just, I'm just going to let it be. I'm just going to let it roll. I'm not going to harm them back. Okay, there's some merit in that, but I would say that's, that's passive, and that's okay. But Jesus calls us much more, too much more than just simply not hurting someone. He calls us to love them, and he calls us to bless them. And so if I don't want any of us, beginning with myself, to just get content with these enemies that I have in my life, people that have wronged me, people that I've taken through, and I'm just going to go, you know what, I'll just let them be. I need to go next step. Do I love them? Do I bless them? How does that look? Verse 31. And as you wish that others would do to you, do so to them. Or the way that most of us know that verse, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Real quickly, I don't want you to miss here, which is why it's always important, whether it be me up here or Buddy or somebody else, have your copy of the Word of God out. Make sure that we're not saying something that's not there. And also, make sure that you're not mishearing something, because I think the way that a lot of people hear that is, hey, you just treat other people the way they treat you. Do unto others as they do to you, which comes down to, if you love me, I'll love you. You invite me to your house, I'll invite you to my house. You curse me, I'm cursing you. That's do unto others as they do to you. But there's a key difference in the language. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Or, in the ESV, and as you wish others would do to you, you do to them. You see the difference? Don't miss the difference. And that is another way that we look at the people that are, because let's just go, well, let's look, actually, Jesus will tell us. It's easy for some people um, to do that with some people and harder to do it with others. And let's go verse 32 and following. 
If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. And if you do good to those who do good to you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners do the same. And if you lend to those from whom you expect to receive, okay, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners to get back the same amount. Verse 35, but, here it is again, love your enemies and do good and lend expecting nothing in return and your reward will be great and you will be the sons, uh, you'll be sons of the most high. So, quickly, you get those first few verses in that section right there. It's like, okay, so what? You lend to people who you're going to get the same thing back. You do good to those who do good to you. You love those who love you. That would be the wrong way of pointing out um, what that golden rule is not. Do to those as they do to you, not as, they w- as you wish they would do to you, uh, because some people don't. And so instead, it's countercultural. You know, love your enemies and do good. You know, so if you feel good about yourself, get a t-shirt or a bumper sticker that goes, yeah, I, I love people that love me. Who cares? Jesus is going, who cares? <laughs> what is that? Everybody does that. You are not differentiating yourself at all based on those actions from uh, just the common sinner or somebody that just does not have the redemption of Jesus Christ. You know, you just do what everybody else does. I mean, who cares? Not a big deal. But instead, look to your enemies. That's, that's a whole different thing. And then why? Here's the further motivation. Again, end of 35. For he, he, Jesus, the Lord, God himself, is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. You have ungrateful people in your life? You have evil people in your life? What do you do? How do you treat them? <laughs> just, to, you know, just avoid them, let them go. Um, at a minimum, I don't hurt them, but I definitely don't love them. I don't do good to them. Why not? Because what does Jesus do? He's kind to the ungrateful and the evil. And then verse 36, oh my goodness, be merciful, even as your Father is merciful. It's always good when we think about people that have harmed us, we consider them to be enemies. It's always good to remember what God has done for us, the mercy that he has shown us because our sin is great. And Jesus has been talking to us specifically through the book of Luke, about just heart stances on things, you know? Yeah, don't murder, but you got, you know, you hate somebody in your heart, kind of the same thing. Or, you know, um, don't lust, uh, or don't, um, don't, don't engage in sexual immorality, but, you know, you have lust in your heart, kind of the same thing, it's committing adultery, you know, that sort of thing. It goes back to the heart thing. So just recognize how God has shown us mercy. Verse 37, we'll we'll wrap this up quickly. Judge not, and you will not be judged. Condemn not, and you will not be condemned. I wish we had um, more time uh, on this passage today. Uh, What what that does not show, I mean, we have, it it does not mean stop using uh, the critical resources in your mind, your rational mind. And it's not like, oh, I'm just never going to look at anything that anybody does bad, because you'll you'll find yourself on a jury, and somebody, yeah, you know, I don't know, stab somebody with a knife a hundred times, and you go, well, who am I to judge? I mean, I'm, you know, I'm not going to judge that. <laughs> you see, that's not how it goes. We use our critical responses, right? But it goes down to, you know, condemn not, you will not be condemned. But what does it say? Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. 
I want us to be, pay close attention, going back to the, our heart stances, whereby we go, I am a quick criticizer. I'm a slow forgiver. I, you know, I, 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 I keep close to my own heart just angst and bitterness and the desire for revenge against people who hurt me. And then you look at them and you go, yeah, I can't believe they did what they did. I mean, come on. You know, that kind of judgment that ultimately resorts into what's happening culturally, and I can't stand it for a lot of different reasons, but we have this thing, and it's a, it's a very prominent thing we call cancel culture these days, and that's going back to the whole, yeah, you used to could say that yesterday, but now if you say that same thing, well, we cancel you, and people lose their jobs, and all this sort of thing, and so I, oof, I hope I'm never famous, because <laughs> I just don't want to deal with that kind of stuff, but you know, here's one thing, can you imagine if we flipped, you know, some of that narrative, and then we as Christians going, oh, you believe that? Well, I cancel you. You know, you're no longer my friend. I can't, I, I can't stand you. I'm no longer talking to you because of this. I just, I don't, I don't think that's, that's the heart of Jesus at all. That's where I think this, this gets to. Um, given it will be given to you, finish in verse 38. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. You see, God rewards he pronounces blessed on those who are transformed by his grace inwardly, and then they demonstrate it, showing up. That's, what, that, that's the heart of God. And we are challenged, I'm challenged, to go, do I do that to other people? What's in my own heart that would cause me to not love my enemies? That sort of thing. Because it, it, it's complicated. It really is. To just read it and say, let's go be after it, Remember what I said earlier, it's not in our power. We have to have, you know, these, you know, love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as you would have them do unto you. Do unto, do unto your neighbor as you would have them do unto you. It's not separated from, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then love your neighbor as yourself. That's how it finishes, right? You don't separate those two. They are together. You love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And then you go to that one next. Uh, that's really the way it has to go. And just saying it, I recognize it's hard. Um, and maybe somebody comes to mind even uh, with you right now. Um, there's just so many examples. And so I don't mean to speak this today without saying again how challenged and convicted I am about these very verses. Um, and I also want to acknowledge um, out loud that it's, it's really, really hard um, I'll just tell you one more story in closing of a guy that I know who did this. It's a guy that, um, you know, we, we met years ago, and we're talking about, you know, he has issues with his own, you know, his own father, biological father. And, you know, father just really kind of looked down on him, and he never felt affirmed by his dad, never felt loved by his dad, and, and all of that. And so as he's an adult man, he, you know, he had a great job, um, you know, wife who loved him, nice house. He's, you know, on all the metrics, he's successful. And he also loves the Lord, uh, but just couldn't reconcile. Couldn't reconcile with his dad because of the pain. And, and we talked through some of this stuff, and then it kind of showed up with um, the birth of their, of their new baby, and it just got into all the, the, the stuff about the baby, you know, the, it, basically parents talking to their son are essentially going, hey, you know, your wife's parents see the, the baby much more than we do, and therefore, I mean, it's all this, oh, all that stuff that can happen in extended families. Um, and then the dad looks at him and says, you know, if you were a real man, 
you'd, make, you'd, you'd stop that. You'd make sure we got to see the kid more. Ooh, that's hurtful. And then he sends me a text message a week later. The, the guy that I'm talking to, he says, I don't even know what to do with this. Sends me a text, and his dad, <sighs> rambling text, but essentially just says, hey, I'm sorry for the things that I've done. And then in there, he goes, I'm sorry for putting you in a dress. And it kept on going on. I'm like, talk to the guy again. What, what is the dressing? He goes, man, it's something that I didn't even want to tell you. He goes, when I was a young man, throwing the football with my dad, and i just not an athletic guy. So my dad said, you throw the ball like a girl. So he made me put on a dress and put me in the front yard to shame me. That's the kind of blow. So we can talk about people and enemies from conceptually. Yeah, let's just go, just go love our enemies and all that. But when it gets real like that, that's a, that's a, that's a, different, that's, that's a different thing. And only through the power of God, through being transformed, can forgiveness be granted. And the close on that story is the guy, yeah, he forgave his dad. And uh, I think they're still rebuilding their relationship. And I believe the Lord got hold of his dad to even come out and say, would you forgive me? Because forgiveness is huge. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Forgiveness does not excuse a behavior. We could talk a whole other hour on forgiveness. Forgiveness does not, does not excuse a bad behavior. Forgiveness actually says that was wrong. And I forgive you. Why? because I recognize what God has done for me already. That's how it works. It's tough stuff. Let me uh, pray for us, and uh, our worship team is going to come lead us in another song. Heavenly Father, um, we need you. We need your grace in order to um, even understand um, the complexities of, of what we've read together and talked through together this morning. Um, we need your grace. Um, to actualize your power in our lives, um, especially as we relate to people that, when we're honest, we don't like them. We consider them our enemies. They harm us. But Lord, help us to see you each and every day, to measure our own actions on your actions, so that, Lord, we can immediately and anticipate in the future the goodness that comes to us, measure for measure, as we forgive and we give. We need you, we love you, and we worship you for who you are and for what you do. In Jesus' name, amen.